I'm Samantha Olds Fry, CEO of the Illinois Association of Medicaid Health Plans, and this is Sam Says, a podcast series focused on Illinois Medicaid managed care. Hello, I'm DeRondel Beverly with the Gemini Group, and welcome to Sam Says. On today's episode, we have a great discussion for you about cancer screenings in Medicaid. But before we do that, let me welcome our host, the Sam and Sam Says, Samantha Olds Fry, CEO of I'm Hip. Sam, how are you today? Great, Gerondel. How are you? Doing well. Um, now we are going to bring in some very special guests again for our conversations today about cancer screenings in Medicaid. We are joined today by Shanna Cruz, the Government Relations Director of Illinois and Iowa, and Suzanne Elder, Senior Director of Cancer Control Strategic Partnerships at the American Cancer Society. I welcome you both to Sam Says. How are you today? Wonderful. Thank you for having us. Wonderful. Wonderful. We're excited to have you both here today for this uh, great conversation with Sam uh, on on cancer and cancer screenings within the Medicaid program. Before we do that, can you level set with our listeners? Why is it important to have cancer screenings and what are some important cancer screenings that people should be aware of? Thanks for that question. Yeah. One of the most powerful things about preventative care is that it keeps you in conversation with your physician and enables you to uh, not only avoid certain preventable cancers, such as colorectal cancer and HPV-related cancers, but it also affords you the opportunity to detect cancers early when they're most treatable, they're most beatable, they're most survivable. And for Medicaid providers in particular and payers, it's also the most dollar positive move that you have in your arsenal to support your, your patients. So it is a, it's the triple win. It's, it's, it's just a wonderful way to help keep people and populations healthy. And Suzanne, I, I could not agree more in sort of the, you know, I think it is the strongest arsenal, our tool in the arsenal. Um, I like that turn of phrase that you used because it's, it oftentimes, um, the cancer screenings, you know, they're, um, they're pretty quick. They're, you know, like they're, they're, they don't take a lot of, um, you know, your time, obviously, uh, colonoscopy sort of being the, the, maybe exception to that. Um, but they then take, should you get a bad diagnosis, but you find it early, um, you are saving yourself. I mean, you're just putting yourself in as strong of a position as possible um, with something so hard as a cancer diagnosis. Um, And we do, and this is also why, and something I really want to talk about with you guys as well. It's so critical because we do see that healthcare disparity as well, where um, Medicaid members, um, members, of color, you know, we are often finding their cancer later and later stages, which means that treatment is harder. Um, It's going to require far more time off of work. I mean, it it is much harder. Um, And and the survival rates, um, you know, aren't as high. And so talking about cancer screenings, under the, you know, with the guys and under the lens of Medicaid, I think it's critical to just acknowledge the disparities that exist and really say, you know, to all of our members, all of our patients, this, the 
get your cancer screenings regularly because obviously none of us want bad news, but if you're going to get bad news, you want to be, you want to find it as soon as possible. So you're in that, you know, so it is the most beatable, um, cancer and, and that you are on the strongest footing, um, possible. You know, Sam, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The, the difference in life expectancy between an early uh, stage diagnosis and a late stage diagnosis is significant. Um, and you also mentioned disparities. You know, I'm, I'm here in the city of Chicago right now. In, in case you hear the train behind me, it's inescapable. So I apologize. Um, but one of the more compelling statistics that has, you know, activated me and my team to, to really work towards uh, addressing is the mortality differences, for example, between uh, black men and white men around colorectal cancer. In Chicago, the mortality rate for black men and colorectal cancer is two times that of white men. I mean, that is, it's just, it's unconscionable. And, and you know, what can we, and what do we do at the American Cancer Society to, to you know, close those disparities and those gaps? You know, it's, it is a long game for sure. Um, but it's absolutely necessary to preserve the general common good, right? If there is an identifiable group of our neighbors that are consistently suffering and consistently losing um, quality of life and length of life because we're not doing our jobs as well as we could, um, that's a problem. So, um, there's a huge opportunity for us to, to resolve this. And some of the strategies and policy interventions that we have been advancing in partnership with you and others have made such a significant difference. Um, you know, you'd mentioned earlier colonoscopy. You know, that's, that's just one strategy that uh, we can use to screen people for colorectal cancer. We can do at-home fit testing, which by the way, has been super effective um, with particularly men you know, it's something they can do in the privacy of their home. And it, it affords that sort of first take on the question. And what I mean by that is if a positive result comes from a fit test, you've effectively triaged yourself into a colonoscopy. And what a wonderful way to approach it, especially now when so many of our GI providers are backed up because of the deferred screenings uh, last year during the pandemic. So there's ways to go about this, but all of these tools need to be deployed in collaboration across, you know, the spectrum of providers and payers and advocates and um, to, to drive some of these improvements. It, it literally means the difference, you know, an important difference in your life and that of your neighbors. Could not, um, agree more with that, the level of significance, the level of importance. Um, and, and I wanna dive a little bit deeper, Suzanne, and just for what you've just highlighted there, which is that heartbreaking disparity that exists. And, and what do we do to close that gap? And, and what are the policy? And of course, I wanna bring Shane in on this discussion because obviously we're talking about policy changes as well. And how do we ensure that the healthcare experience is the same regardless, or uh, you know, regardless of race, which we just know today, it just it isn't um, in terms of you know just initial experience, but also the, you know most importantly outcome and survival rates. Uh, so, education around 
prevention and screenings, making sure that folks know that you know, there are screenings for these, the benefit of getting screened early, making sure that everybody knows, and I'll probably repeat this like five times throughout this uh, podcast and this episode is that Medicaid covers these cancer screenings and that members have no cost sharing around this. This is a, this is covered. Should you get bad news? Should you get a diagnosis or need further diagnostic screening? That is covered as is treatment. Um, you mm-hmm. know, Medicaid is a comprehensive healthcare benefit that, that is going to cover that for you. Um, so we recognize that oftentimes, you know, cost is a barrier to, um, to engaging the healthcare system. But if you've Medicaid covered, um, prevention, diagnosis, diagnostics, um, and, and, treatment are all covered. So I just want to underscore that probably five more times. But so beyond uh, education um, and, and making sure that uh, doctors are talking to their patients. And then we've um, here at IMHIP have also, you know, had a big push around implicit bias because we're all people, um, including doctors and nurses and, and PAs, um, you know, just making sure that there's that implicit bias training. Um, and, you know, we've seen that uh, thing, you know, it was part of the black uh, caucus healthcare pillar, House Bill 158. So, you know, that's sort of moving forward. What are there, what are those other sort of thoughts and strategies around how do we close that gap? And I'll leave that, Shane, I don't know if you want to dive in or Suzanne. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And especially in oncology, we're moving to more of a precision oncology world where we are getting a lot, we know a lot more about how to attack cancer. But that also means that as we're shifting into this new world and we're able to treat cancer almost as a chronic condition and cure many types of cancers when caught early, that we need to make sure everyone is benefiting from this new type of innovation. And for us, one um, major component of that is to also make sure that you know Medicaid covered biomarker testing. And as uh, we continue to see the advances with those targeted therapies, that that type of testing is covered for everyone and not just those who can afford to pay out of pocket for the, that type of testing. And so um, we were really excited to support your initiative uh, on implicit bias training. I believe that was first introduced in like 2019, if I remember correctly. And um, we're really happy to see you all championing that because it's also something that we find critically important. And, um, you know, also from the physician side of things, you know, making sure that we're working on provider education. And as we're moving into this precision oncology space, that physicians across the board feel comfortable with talking to their patients about whether it be biomarker testing or these different types of therapies um, and not just kind of the routine of what we think cancer care is. And so um, that's something that we can, will expect to see continued changes. And hopefully as more and more at home, cancer diagnostic and um, prevention strategies are able to be taken care of, like the at-home fit tests where you can do your at-home colorectal cancer screening, um, that we'll continue to see a rise in cancer screenings and help prevent folks from seeing a full-blown cancer diagnosis uh, that they have to deal with um, long-term. And Shana, thank you, A, for your partnership on, on the implicit bias, uh, you know, legislation and, and helping us champion that, um, obviously, along with the Black Caucus, uh, but then also really starting to, to lay that foundation about this is such a uh, rapidly changing field, and that is um, amazing. I mean, really, 
it just just phenomenal in terms of the the leaps and bounds that we are we are making. I mean, I, not even every year. It feels like every six months. <laughs> um, but then also what that means from a physician education standpoint, um, and making sure that though those leaps and bounds of progress are um, available and and felt by everybody, mm-hmm. and not just those um, who can get you know who have. Um, you know, the best of the best of insurance and are able to sort of advocate um, for themselves to get the top, top doctor, but really that we're, you know, making sure that there's broad education about these resources. And then also what I think is so critical, because I think, well, not as new, it is still newer, some of these at-home screenings and the effectiveness of them and, and the availability and coverage of them um, and making sure that members or patients know, you know, that, that there are potentially, you know, like alternatives to just the traditional colonoscopy, as we've talked about, is sort of that, you know, obviously it's for low to moderate risk. I mean, you know, there are folks, there. there's a, a criteria in terms of appropriateness, but that that might be a, it's less invasive. Um, and it might be something for a patient who's really hesitant um, to go, you know, or, or doesn't have the time or, as uh, Suzanne said, you know, there's just a, a large weight right now um, because of every, you know, because of 2020. So that might be the first step, making sure that all physicians, you know, you know that are, um, you know, PCPs are aware of the coverage um, and talking about this as an option to their patient population. Absolutely. You know, the, 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 the range of, um, strategies that are available to us to address uh, your question earlier about sort of moving this needle. Um, it's, it's, I think, really important while we can identify particular groups that are either more advantaged or um, less advantaged, it's important to recognize that, at least I believe, that um, those are markers for the, the perpetrators, so to speak. Um, the individuals themselves are, are uh, it's, it's potentially problematic to focus on individual, I mean, on groups of individuals, because it suggests somehow that it's their fault, that they have higher rates of cancer, that they have um, lower, you know, survival rates, et cetera. When in fact, the systems and policies that create those environments are literally driving those results. So while we identify these populations and we seek to intervene and support and and provide additional resources to, we're essentially mitigating other problems, basically um, uh, a less effective policy, you know, workflows that aren't efficient, uh, particular, you know, any number of the sort of structural things that create the environment in which people live. And so these are big, juicy, kind of crunchy questions, but they're important ones for us to both think about and then imagine how we can plug in for those solutions. Um, you know, it's it it is um, it's stigmatizing in a way, right? When we start uh, only looking at individuals as in groups of individuals as though somehow they are problems, and that's just simply not the case. I know that one of the most important policy changes that has come in this last year is the change in the Preventative Services Task Force in their recommendation of when to start colorectal cancer screenings. Uh, 
So um, in 2018, the American Cancer Society really stepped out in front of this issue and said, um, given what we see and um, the uh, earlier and earlier onset and diagnosis of colorectal cancer, we need to shift this age of initiation. So it is now covered under um, both state and federal law that this is part of the preventative package. So guidelines now say that screening can begin at age 45. This is a huge, huge and important uh, change in our practice across the board. And the reason it is, and this is kind of interesting, at least for me, <laughs> I find this a little bit geeky, but cool. If you look at the change in late stage diagnosis, for example, on breast cancer, that proportion that's late stage, it's been declining every year for, you know, as far back as I've looked, at least 10, 20 years. Um, when you look at the proportion of late stage diagnoses for colorectal cancer, it's the opposite. It's been ticking up every single year. And so that is what, that, that is for me, um, a, that's a fire. That is um, indicative of a couple of things. Not only do we have to redouble our efforts, but additional strategies like changing the, the initiation age on guidelines on, um, for colorectal is key. It's gonna save thousands of lives. So we have a big job in front of us, making sure that all of our providers know um, that 45 is the age and we need to get going. Yes, big red flags there um, with that, especially when you think of the development of uh, less invasive, uh, you know, technologies um, for colorectal cancer. The fact that we're still finding it later and later uh, is a real concern. And I just want to underscore your point previously, Suzanne, about when we talk about healthcare disparities. Um, you know, I think we see from time to time people say, "Oh, it's." you know, it's not because the system has failed, it's because of the individual or lifestyle choices or, you know, whatever that may be. And time and time again, we find that that's not true. It's that the system fails um, communities and populations. Uh, and, and that is, and we need to focus on fixing those failures, fixing those gaps within the system um, and within, you know, public policy uh, rather than sort of um, truly victim blaming was, is the, um, the other sort of approach there. Now, we talked about lowering the age um, around colorectal cancer screening and the reason why we saw big red flags. I am an optimistic person by nature, and so I'd like to sort of switch gears and talk a little bit about cervical cancer screening guidelines because I'm pretty sure those have been changed too, um, but in a different direction for a different reason. And that I think is, uh, you know, Shane or, or Suzanne, if you wanna dive into that a little bit more about what the changes um, were, that were made and the recommendations and sort of why, um, and then we can hopefully talk a little bit about the uh, vaccination for HPV. Yeah, Shana, I think we could agree though that the reason is the same reason that we changed those guidelines. The data informed the change, right? In both instances, colorectal and cervical. So we know that, but less than oh, less than a half a percentage point of all uh, diag uh, cervical cancer diagnoses are amongst uh, young women 21 to 24 years of age. Um, and we also know that when we um, uh, are successful in vaccinating all of our adolescents against HPV, that that number will evaporate. 
We also know that as we continue to increase that rate more and more, that we literally stand a chance of eradicating cervical cancer. It is on the horizon. Um, it's a pretty exciting time to be, um, you know, on the precipice of actually eliminating the cancer. So there were some very sound, practical, evidence-based reasons for why ACS changed its recommendations around cervical cancer screening. Um, so the age of initiation now has risen to 25, starting routine screening. It was at 21. Um, and there are some varieties of way, ways that you can um, comply, so to speak, with the recommended guidelines. Um, but at the all of it, and what we really want to promote uh, consistently, consistently, and as a long-term strategy is HPV vaccination. Um, but that's what I know on that count. Shana, anything on your end? Well, much like we were just talking about the importance of returning, uh, you know, getting screened and making sure people get their cancer screenings, same for, um, you know, making sure that adolescents are getting their HPV vaccines. Uh, we know that primary care physicians and pedi um, pediatricians do not have an easy task in front of them, especially <laughs> with the timing of trying to get COVID vaccines administered as well as the routine vaccines and HPV. And the timing of that is incredibly complicated. And so, you know, very much appreciate the work that's going into solving that puzzle um, and just reminding folks that, you know, it's just as important to, you know, prevent cancer through vaccine. Um, and you know, we're hopeful that uh, we can continue to see those rates continue to decline and the successes of the vaccine uh, move forward. So Shana, I love that you brought that up um, because I always think when we talk about the HPV vaccine, I just wanna scream and underscore, it is a cancer vaccine. Like <laughs> we are talking about future vaccines, you know, down the horizon or future treatments for cancer. And we have a cancer vaccine today. Um, and, and we've seen in other countries where their vaccination rate for their adolescent population is higher um, than where we are in, um, in in the U.S. I mean, they we've really seen significant drops in cervical cancer, and so we know that this works. We know that this is effective, um, and it's here, and it's you know it's been here you know for for quite a bit. And so you know, making sure that that adolescents get in and get their routine vaccinations, including the cancer vaccine, um, is something that is a high priority. Um, for I'm hip for the Medicaid health plans, but I, you know, I think on obviously also the American Cancer Society, um, and really hopefully our entire provider community, um, because there's there's so much uh, that can be gained by vaccinating against cancer, um, and and we've started to sort of see that with the rising of the screening, you know, rising from 21 to 25 um, for women, and, and hopefully we'll continue to make that great progress. And then hopefully we'll also be able to close those gaps around colorectal cancer screenings um, and the disparities that we continue to see because of the failures of the system. Ladies, I just want to thank you um, for joining us today and for talking about this you know, just critical topic and, and all of the moving pieces um, and how we can work together to improve the system of care um, that all of our patients are members. I love how you said it, Suzanne, our neighbors um, and how they interface with the healthcare system and how we can make it 
better and improve outcomes. So just thank you so very much for joining us. And thank you. This was really lovely. You know, your members have been innovators and exceptional examples of performance. It, it, it is amazing to me how um, receptive your members are to piloting and experimenting with work that meets needs. You guys are at the top of performance when it comes to HPV vaccination. Um, just wonderful partners doing very good work. We really appreciate you. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you so much. And it is, the plans have really, our Medicaid plans, this is, this is their bread and butter work, right? Like you have, if you have to do this, you have to get these screenings, you have to vaccinate against cancer, um, in order to, you know, bend the curve in order to improve outcomes. Um, and so thank you for saying that Suzanne, thank you, Shana and Suzanne for the work you guys do at the American Cancer Society and really always being a partner and saying, here's the problem. How do we work together to address it? Cause I think that's how we move forward. Agreed. Okay. Thanks so much. I think that's a good a good spot to close it out. Um, you know, Shana and, and Suzanne, I definitely, uh, I too want to thank you for being a part of, of this conversation today and hoping that both of you would be willing to come back and join an episode of Sam's Desk in the future, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Sam. A great conversation, uh, as always, about very important topics in our space. Uh, anything today that you found incredibly interesting or just, you know, that you will continue to track and, and think about as, as we move forward into the summer and, and beyond? Yeah, so I always love talking with Shannon and Suzanne. They're, they're just a wealth of knowledge. Um, but one thing that, you know, I think is going to keep me up um, for nights ahead is that we're really seeing that colorectal cancer diagnosis and timing of it sort of move in the wrong direction. And how do we work together um, using the technologies that we have, using um, you know, provider education to you know, get that early diagnosis, find it sooner so that it's more treatable and beatable. Um, so I'm gonna spend some time thinking about that. Um, and really, you know, underscoring with our chief medical officer, uh, you know, others in the field, like this is something we're going to have to really think about, especially because it plays into also that pillar of healthcare quality that we think about often and always, which is um, healthcare disparities and how are the systems failing um, various communities and our members and what can we do to sort of sure up those systems um, so that they, you know, so we fill in those gaps so that members get better care. Okay. All right. That's a great point. Great point to close it out on. Again, special thanks to Shanna and Suzanne from the American Cancer Society for joining us today. If you've liked what you've heard, I encourage you to visit the I'm Hip website at imhip.net. That's I-A-M-H-P.net to learn more about what the association is doing and to listen to other interesting podcasts like this one today. I also encourage you to like and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you're interested in becoming a trusted partner like the American Cancer Society, I encourage you to reach out to I'm Hip's operating officer, Elena Kennedy, or visit the website again at I'mHip.net. On behalf of Sam and the team at I'm Hip, I'm Dee Rondell Beverly with the Gemini Group. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sam Says. Stay safe and we'll talk to you soon.